0: Good day, May 40 here. So just reading an article in New York Times, Molly Jong Fast. Right? She is the daughter of Erica Jong. and uh, here's the article right, how Molly Jong Fast tweeted her way to stardom. And I interviewed her back in 2004. I was doing a whole series of interviews on American Jewish literature, and she was one of the Jewish novelists that I interviewed. So, why has Molly Jung Fast been able to tweet her way to stardom? And why have, uh, say, Kyrie Irving and Kanye West gotten into a ton of trouble recently? And A lot of it simply has to do with likability. Molly Jung Fast is incredibly likable. She's incredibly open about her struggles with addiction, and I I knew she was a lefty when I interviewed her and she knew I was on the right but she was just incredibly charming and pleasant and fun to talk to and people like Kyrie Irving and Kanye West they're just not very nice not just very fun not exactly fun to talk to right they're difficult people Uh, Molly Jung Young not such a difficult person she's very easy to get along with And so, people like easy. So, how Molly Jong-Fast tweeted her way to liberal stardom. She wasn't a political expert, but a Trump-era angst found a following among Democrats and even the White House is interested. So, she just... The story begins with her interviewing Vice President Kamala Harris. (laughs) And... She tells the owner of the New Republic, Wyn McCormack, Oh, I just interviewed the vice president. And McCormack replies, brow-faring, The vice president of the United States? So, Erica Jong Fast, 44, she is perhaps best known for being the daughter of her mother Erica Jung, who wrote the classic feminist novel Fear of Flying. So, Molly Jong Fast went into rehab at 19. She got married at age 23. She read a couple of novels, that's why I interviewed her. She read a book of essays about her bohemia by way of Park Avenue upbringing. Now she's a liberal media star. So how did she do it? By being damn likeable. So this week she joined Vanity Fair as a special correspondent. One million people follow her on Twitter. Her podcast is distributed by Media. Her first guest was Ron Klain, President Joe Biden's chief of staff. She's interviewed all sorts of senators like Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer. She's interviewed Julia Louis-Dreyfus, John Fetterman, Kamala Harris. Right, she's interviewed people like a MSNBC lineup. So her ascent is a little bit like the Woody Allen movie Purple Rose of Cairo where a moviegoer steps into the screen and enters the world of her favorite film. So she marshalled her weapons grade Twitter habit and her networking ability, she just slide into journalist DMs and she's become a star of left-wing media. She's an MSNBC mom who appears on MSNBC. So part of it in the big picture you say, oh it's because of you know the growing importance of social media, but a darn lot of it is just that she's so likable. Hey you can be right-wing and enjoy a conversation with Molly jong fast. She is not pompous. And a lot of it is that uh, professional punditry does not require uh, unique, rare skills. It's not a big difference between armchair pundits and professional pundits. This is a woman who's likable and a great networker. She wins friends easily, she wears her privilege lightly, and she has incredible empathy and charm, and most people who rise to media stardom are pretty good with being charming, like Richard Spencer was charming, Uh, Nick Fuentes, charming, right, the power of likability, so, Noah Shackman is now the editor of Rolling Stone. So, Noah wrote three articles about me back in the year 2000 and 2001. Now he's the editor of Rolling Stone. Like, when he came to L.A., we used to go to social gatherings together. I introduced him to Andrew Breitbart and a whole bunch of the that crew. So, now Noah Shackman has done good. It's like uh, there's this economics writer for the, for the New York Times I used to Adam Adam blanking on his name used to know him 20 years ago Like he introduced himself to me, showed me around he's gone on to great success now with the New York Times regular column I think weekly on the economy for the New York Times so she's not adversarial she's nice so one big reason why Molly Jung Fast is successful and Kyrie Irving and Kanye West are struggling so Kanye and Kyrie are not very nice and uh, one key to likeability is just Molly Jung Fast is just incredibly open people generally speak like people are open and honest and people like people who are willing to be vulnerable people like people who open up so she says I was a drug addict, I nearly died I got sober, I've had this incredible run and she's grateful, people like people who are grateful so her grandparents include Howard Fast the novelist of Spartacus fame, and communist Served prison time during the McCarthy era. And her mother, Erica Jong, was an early adopter of oversharing. So in 1985, Erica Jong moved six year old Molly Jong into the Beverly Hilton for a month because Erica was developing a sitcom based on her daughter's experience with divorce. So, Eric. Molly Jong's father, Jonathan Fast, sued Erica, his ex-wife, and demanded that the TV show change Molly's character's name from Molly to Megan. And a review in the New York Times praises the show's appealing breeziness. <laughs> Molly Jong Fast is dyslexic. She did poorly in school. She got kicked out of Dalton, this elite private school it was like a seismic shock to her intellectual family she got into alcohol and drugs she spent time at Hazelden the A-List Rehab Center and then published a novel about her struggles I just did what my mother did she says, I thought that's what you're supposed to do the reviews were vicious she then married her husband who was an English professor turned venture capitalist she had three children, she wrote another book then Trump came down the escalator and it gave her life meaning Right? we're all looking for meaning in life want to feel so we matter that we have significance so Donald Trump came along and gave a ton of people meaning whether they're, they're pro or anti-Trump so to be successful it requires energy and it's a lot easier to get energy if you feel that what you're doing is significant so Erica Jung felt like oh, the, you know, the republic is at risk I, I need to tweet about my angst and she hit a chord she became incredibly successful I had
1: a bit of an interesting
0: experience
1: last night so it was probably 1 in the morning or so and I was up too late and I was about to go to bed and I clicked on this, this um, I was just looking at twitter and I clicked on this space that was being recommended to me and it had, you know, 250 people in it or something. And I was just kind of curious, actually. And I think the title was something like The Big Man Returns or something. So I was curious and then I realized immediately that it was Nick Fuentes who has a... um, He has some, you know, secret account or something. He's, uh, He's disobeying Twitter's policy by creating new accounts. And there were a lot of people in there and it was only... I mean, by the time I realized that it was Nick Fuentes, you know, in a matter of, say, 30 seconds or so, I, I, they were like, oh, Spencer's in the chat, or what do you know. And uh, they were like, we, we got to get him out here, blah, blah, blah. And I, I was kind of hesitant to accept the request, but I did. And I was expecting a kind of, like, you know, blowtorch, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, treatment by Fuentes. It was just going to be this um, acrimonious and, and useless kind of thing that I was going to hang up on. Uh, Because it's not worth my time, and I think Nick kind of got that a little bit. And it was weird. I had not spoken to Fuentes in quite some time.
0: And so they're both charming when they want to be, right? They they didn't get to where they are by not being charming.
1: You know, everyone has a different persona. You know, there's a certain public persona. There's a persona you might have with your with your parents. Say, there's a persona you have with your child. There's a persona you have at work. There's a persona you have when you're watching a football game or something. But um,
0: so we all and that's so important, right? We don't have just, like, this set personality, you know, certain traits where we're outgoing or we're tough or we're vicious or we're ultra-competitive, right? These so called, you know, essential character traits that we have, right? They are domain-specific, they're situation-specific, that right? we all adopt different personas in, in different parts of life. ...put
1: on a mask on some level, of course, but, um, you know, I've heard this about Fuentes, and i heard this from other people, even people who dislike him intensely and that is that if you ever can kind of get him off the online debate stage he can actually be reasonable and he is intelligent but he can actually be thoughtful and reasonable and listen to you and i have to say i talked with him i don't know maybe it was 30 minutes something like that it, it wasn't a huge thing right this, but, um,
0: this isn't I have to surprising hand it
1: one it now granted perhaps i'm going to change my mind immediately when he starts doing his usual tricks uh, afterward but the guy was he's very reasonable he's he's more self-aware than he lets on i mean i think one thing that we've
0: all okay we all get in situations where we have to change our personalities whether it's work or we're playing football or in some sort of contest so this shouldn't be nearly as surprising as it seems to be for richard you know of course he can be intelligent and charming of course he switches in and out of different personas we all do. All is that kind of
1: weird manic persona where he's you know, he's the only god guy on screen and he is playing this kind of weird zoomer gamer slash midwestern talk radio host, uh slash video you know, video game playing edgelord. And it's you know, I don't I don't I don't know, I probably won't do an interpretation of it, but you know what I mean. There's this kind of manic quality to it where it's like you know sorry guys sorry but you know if my lord is in hell according to your religion you have no place in america okay goodbye you got to get out you got to get out all right what are we thinking of? you know there's a certain kind of mannerism and there's a lot of uh, picking up on trumpism the use of we is something um there's actually a study in which leaders actually used i more than we but um but it, with trump it's we so it's a you you are part of a collective through me in a way like you know um
0: so pundits become successful by feeding an audience not by challenging an audience, like Richard wants to develop an audience that wants to be challenged. But there's no money in that. There's no money in being right in your punditry. The money is in being interesting and in feeding a, an audience's desire to hear reasons for why what they believe and feel is true and good and better than the alternative. Uh, we,
1: we love McConnell, he's he behind us all the way. Or we hate Mitch McConnell, he is a rhino cook. Um, it, it's it's a kind of a, it's not a royal we exactly it's kind of a presumed we where you know you have political consciousness through an individual he does that um, but it's funny I, maybe it was just the fact that he was actually kind of relaxed and uh, oh. I was not attacking him and uh, it was actually a good conversation I, I think behind all of that craziness there is someone who's actually intelligent and I think maybe that's a little bit tragic about Nick um, but the main thing I told him was. You know, did you do you feel like you are being used? That was effectively what I asked him, it was it was a leading question because obviously, my assumption is that the answer is yes. And what I was referring to is like you have these conservative institutions, uh, the Women for Trump say, that created the.
0: Of course, he's being used. We're all being used, right? We're all being used, and we're all using other people. So, this isn't some you know giant revelation. Right, we all try to use other people to meet our needs. Other people try to use us to meet their needs, of course.
1: The, um, the rented out the ellipse actually during
0: January 6th and the whole
1: apparatus of behind the scenes apparatus of Ali Alexander and Roger Stone and all of these crazies in Georgia and so on. And, you know, they have money to some degree uh, with Women for Trump or Women for America First, which was originally a Tea Party group. They have an institution, and so they have like a massive email list, they have a network.
0: So yeah, of course it's being used. Like, that shouldn't be so surprising, right? People just don't uh, do nice things for us purely out of the goodness of their hearts, right? There are a whole lot of transactions going on. Right? We're all using and being used. That's just the nature of reality, right? Your boss doesn't give you a paycheck just out of the goodness. Of his heart. He gives you a paycheck in exchange for services. Husbands and wives are constantly doing things for each other. The man takes out the trash, the woman cleans the bathroom, and you know, the man may bring home the majority of the income. So much of life is transactional. You can be subtler or you can be more obvious with it. That's the nature of reality. That's how the world works. You know what? I'm coming back here a thousand times if I have to. We win. They lose. That's how the world works.
1: we to talk about Kanye West, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, the ADL, Ali Alexander, G6, Insurrectionist, and more. And I'm going to circle around the topic of Christian anti-Semitism. And by that, I mean
0: something. So, listening to Richard Spencer here talk about Christian anti-Semitism. So, anti-Semitism is a fancy name for anti-Jewish or Jewish critical. And it's not an essential quality, right? There's no essential quality to being Jewish, or to being Christian, or to being white, or being black, or aborigine, right? Qualities manifest differently in different circumstances. Wow, look at that enormous ship coming into harbour. Wow. So I'm here at Sydney Harbour and you can just see the outlines of the Sydney Opera House there in in the distance. Okay, so just like it's Saudi money that's funding Elon Musk's free speech takeover of Twitter, Right? So the Saudis are on the side of freedom, guys. Well, in this circumstance, they are. But in other circumstances, they're certainly on the side of repression. Right? So no group is eternally on the side of repression. No group is eternally on the side of freedom. No group is eternally on the side of God or on what's right or what's wrong. All right, but The side we're on depends upon circumstance.
1: In Something very specific. So I, I'm, I'm sure that everyone listening to this has been exposed to what could probably be called, most accurately, casual anti-Semitism. These uh, usually involve...
0: And so a lot of what's called casual anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism is simply that people tend to dislike and fear, even hate those who are different from them. Right? Jews, just as high a proportion of Jews have fear and hatred and negative feelings towards non-Jews, Right? anti-Gentilism as... as non-Jews have towards Jews, right? We all tend to have negative feelings towards those who are different. Uh, Depending on the circumstance, right, those feelings may be more or less intense. But uh, they absolutely have nothing to do whatsoever with the intrinsic qualities of whatever group or individuals we see representing a certain group.
1: Involve Jews being good with money or tight with money or not great athletes or something like that. Um, I can remember when I was growing up, there was a joke of... uh, how do you lose a Jewish cop, you take the toll road, you know, ba doom crash <laughs> The implication that Jews, you know, are very tight with money and wouldn't chase you down the
0: toll road. Um, we only have so much time, so much energy, so much mental processing power, and so to reduce all these variables, we put people into groups, All right, We don't see people, generally speaking, who we don't know, we don't see strangers as individuals, we see them as members of groups. and. That's just how it is, and we tend to fear and loathe and dislike those who are different from us. Right? Everybody hates a stranger, says Mark Twain, and Jews are everywhere a stranger. Even yeah, the I mean,
1: These, in strangers. my mind, are the equivalent of you know, funny jokes about Italians uh, or whatever, in the sense that they might be mean-spirited, in some cases. Uh, they might also contain a kernel of truth, but at the end of the day, they're rather benign and maybe even Rather meaningless. Uh, But Christian anti Semitism is something different, and I do think it's something more profound. And uh, as I said on Twitter, um, I, I think there's a kind of.
0: Of course, it's going to be more profound because Christianity came from the Jews, all right? Why do people lose everything and get punished for expressing Jewish sentiment, but everything derogatory can be said about white people without penalty? Why is that? because Jews, number one, are much more effective at organizing in their own interests. Wow, I was just talking to a family member and they talked about my chubby cheeks. And I went to synagogue here in Australia, they remembered me from a year ago and they said, wow, you put on weight. <laughs> so yeah, Jews are more effective at organizing in their own interests than white people are. Right? That's that's your answer right there. Right? A lot of A lot of this organization requires discipline and expertise and funds and shaping of narratives. So some people are just more effective at shaping a narrative than other people. A
1: pathological ambivalence to it. Uh, There's inherent mixed feelings and contradiction to this.
0: Well, of course, Christians are going to have mixed feelings about Jews and Judaism because Christianity emerged out of Judaism. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. He came first to the Jews to try to get them to accept his message, and they of all the peoples in the world have been the most resistant to the claims that uh, Christianity made for him. So of course there's going to be ambivalence. Christianity took on the Jewish scriptures, though of course nobody believes that they're starting a new religion. Everybody just thinks that they're perfecting or fulfilling the existing religion. I mean, Muhammad had the same attitude towards Jews and Christians.
1: And so the Christian anti-Semite can say...
0: And question from the chat, Joseph says, do Jews ally with blacks against white people? Well, sometimes, right, when Jews are part of the coalition of the fringe because they fear the white Christian core, they might find some common interest with blacks. Just like in other issues, uh, Jews and whites may find common interest in supporting stronger law enforcement. So... Generally speaking, politics in America revolves around a coalition of the fringe. Right? Blacks, Jews, Latinos, Chinese, Japanese, homosexuals kind of united against the white Christian core. And by and large, Jews like Asians have fit in with the, the coalition of the fringe. And the coalition of the fringe has almost nothing in common, right, except, you know, fear and loathing of the white Christian core.
1: A hey, some rather harsh stuff. Kanye West has talked about people in the media and people he's had relationships with in the recording industry.
0: So if you are due critical, you have to think that Kanye West would be your last choice as a spokesman. Right? This is not a guy who tends to sound particularly rational or compelling. I, I, I would not want Kanye West articulating my point of view. I would not want Kanye West fighting for, for my people. I mean, I would cringe at that prospect.
1: As basically being a bunch of bastards. He can say some harsh things. But at the end of the day, he I guess what's most telling about his anti-Semitism is that he considers himself to be a Jew. And by being a Christian with the blood of Christ, he is a Jew.
0: So my father, the preacher man, he would always talk about how Christians are the real Jews and uh, the Jews that we have today are not the, the real Jews. So many people who are anti the current crop of Jews still want to tie into the ancient lineage of, of Israel that goes back to the Hebrew Bible. So Kanye, my father, and uh, hundreds of millions of other Christians are in the same camp.
1: Uh, so that kind of seeming contradiction, I think, gets at the heart of
0: this deep ambivalence. We're all ambivalent and contradictory. Like. One day we hate our boss, the next day we love our boss. One day we hate our co-worker, the next day we love our co-worker. Like, we're all filled with contradictory feelings and thoughts going in many different directions. We need a Wasp or Anglo-Saxon organization for protection for our rights. If we don't have that, we're going to lose, says Joseph. Yeah, so you would think that would be the Anglican Church. Like, why doesn't the Anglican Church serve as an organizing principle and organization for Anglos around the world. Why doesn't the Anglican Church unite the world's Anglo-Saxon tribes and uh, make them a coherent civilization once again, perhaps under the reign of a philosopher king like uh, King Charles? Will, will he do the trick?
1: Jesus came to fulfill the laws of Moses. That is...
0: Right, that's that's a text in the Gospels. All right, so one text does not... A- <laughs> is not a theological truth make All right so christianity quickly jettisoned most torah laws now jesus was observant of torah law but christianity has never been about observing you know, the, the ritual laws of the torah which are 95% of the laws of the torah
1: is the pentateuch or the uh, first five books of the old testament uh, he did not come to cancel the jewish scriptures even though he did uh, break some of the jewish laws
0: well, every new religion that comes along thinks that they're fulfilling the existing religion that they're a part of so this isn't new or unique
1: in his uh, practice and um, also is notable for stressing grace and forgiveness above adherence to laws
0: so there are plenty of segments and parts of Judaism that stress grace and forgiveness above you know adherence to law so that's not a unique brand new insight from Jesus so from my, my Jewish perspective Everything Jesus said that was true was not new, and everything he said that was new was not true.
1: So, Jesus, even when he was raging against the Pharisees, even when he was seemingly contradicting Judaism, was ultimately a Jew and ultimately fulfilling.
0: So Jews are known for verbal disputes, right? Jews are known for being a difficult and challenging people. So Jews are constantly disputing within within each other, right? So Jesus was part of this intra-Jewish dialogue. And then from, from my perspective and from the, I think a, a secular perspective on Christianity, then the Apostle Paul came along and had these visions and completely transformed Jesus into you know the Christ who was part of a triune Godhead comes to earth to save people from sin. As long as they believe in him and partake in a you know, pseudo-cannibalistic ritual of drinking the blood and eating the flesh.
1: Judaism. Uh, very similar to Kanye, who in his anti-Semitic quote-unquote outburst is ultimately declaring himself to be a Jew and declaring...
0: Yeah, if, if Kanye's outburst was anti-Semitic, then anti-Semitic is a pretty weak thing, right? Kanye's outbursts were pretty weak tea, right? They, they, they're not exactly you know, imperiling the lives of thousands of Jews around the world.
1: Declaring Jews as, so to speak, pointing towards Christ... So this is the profound ambivalence that I think really should be taken seriously because you hear a lot of, you know, shrill shrieking in the media of, oh, you know, anti-Semitism is on the rise again. It's everywhere. And these mainstream figures like Kanye West.
0: And how do you get, you know, statements like anti-Semitism is on the rise again? Because there's no objective definition of it. All right. Just the most normal human reactions to people who are different suddenly gets classified as anti-Semitism. So how bad is the wind? How bad is the wind affecting the audio quality? Western Kyrie Irving are
1: being anti-Semitic. What are we going to do you know, next thing you know? Uh, the Third Reich is going to come back again. Well, look, that's overstated to begin with. But again, I would stress that what we're seeing right now is not mere Jew hatred. It's something deeper and something more contradictory, and it is.
0: So you don't hate those who you think are below you, right? You only hate those who threaten you. So people who don't have any interactions with Jews are much less likely to have negative feelings about them. So, for example, in Australia, you'll find the most concentrated anti-Jewish attitudes in Sydney and in Melbourne, where people are most likely to... uh, ..where people are most likely to encounter Jews. So apparently Richard Spencer's not coming across too clearly... ...is
1: in the minds of the people saying these things an attempt to redeem the Jews... So let me, let me look at this a little more specifically in this ADL-Kanye West controversy that is happening. And All
0: right. so why do Jews support uh, immigration, right, into majority white European countries but protect Israel against this? Is this a divide and conquest plan and for Jewish interests? Well, the same Jews who oppose immigration into Israel, right, oppose immigration into America. So... Left-wing Ashkenazi Jews, right, they tend to be for for open borders, whether it's for the Jewish state or for the American state or the Australian state. Uh, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews and right-wing Jews tend to be opposed to immigration or open borders, you know, anywhere, including for the Jewish state. So blessings here to Elliot Blatt. The the whole gang is here.
1: And, And just a little Twitter and telegram exchange that I think reveals all the fault lines in this. Uh, dialectic. Um, yeah, I, I recently was called out by the chief of the ADL. Uh, I was connected with uh, Kanye West as spreading sludge on Twitter. So we'll see if uh, I'm a sacrificial lamb, as it were, uh, in Elon Musk's stated attempt to protect the free speech. Anyway, I hope I'm not. Um, but Max Blumenthal, I've known about Max Blumenthal for quite some time. I actually first encountered him you know, a decade ago or more when he was Mostly targeting the religious right and conservatives. I remember some of these cringe compilation videos that he would make when he would go to CPAC and he would interview Christian nationalists or Christian Zionists and they would say things like, you know, we love Israel, they have our steadfast support, and then he'd push them a little further and they would talk about the end times and and effectively, um, I don't know how many it is, but, you know, 100,000 Jews. uh... So uh,
0: Max Blumenthal is an interesting character, right? He's a bloke of the left but uh, he makes interesting videos Uh, he raises, you know, provocative points he deals with a lot of stuff that that the mainstream media doesn't want to deal with so, you know, kudos to to Max for for the good work that he does I'm not aware of everything he does but uh, I certainly found those videos of his that I have paid attention to are thought-provoking
1: converting to Christianity, and the rest of them going up into flames or something like this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't really go in for his stuff, but there, there was something uh, interesting about it. That's how I that's how I learned about Max Blumenthal. Uh, over the past, say, four years, he's joined the Grey Zone, or perhaps a co-founder editor of the Grey Zone, and uh, he's most notable for becoming a uh, Russian shell, which is a surprising choice, a surprising trajectory that I never would have guessed. Anyway, uh, he was saying something that was critical, but, but also you know, Pretty true uh, about the situation of the ADL right now as being the anti-defamation league that is protecting Jews from.
0: Uh... So Russian shill—that's an interesting designation. So you know what makes a Russian shill? So often a Russian shill is simply someone who opposes the Biden administration's you know headlong rush into a massive conflict in Europe, risking nuclear exchange with Russia, risking World War Three. So anyone who's critical. Of the tens of billions of dollars that we're funneling towards Ukraine, suddenly they become known as, as Russian shills, right? It's just a, it's just a put down, right? It doesn't it refer to some essential quality that uh, you just always pro Russia, right? People are pro Russia in certain contexts, particularly when they oppose the subsidizing and escalating. Of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right, So plenty of people get called Russian shills. You know, without <laughs> without being Russian shills, they're simply opposed to heading into World War III. They they want to exercise some cognitive empathy towards uh, whatever Putin's doing, all right? And so, like Jewish shills, Christian shills, conservative shills, right? They're often just in a certain situation. They're standing up for a particular point of view or interest. It's not an eternal quality. It's not an essential quality. They're just, you know, always pro-Russian or pro-Jewish. Uh, slander
1: and libel and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we, this, is, this is according to Max We white American Jews are living through a golden age of power, affluency or affluence, and safety. Acceptance of this welcome reality threatens the entire Zionist enterprise.
0: Well, it's true that uh, American Jews are in a golden age. Things are really good for Jews in America. Jews are like the safest they've ever been. Now, that doesn't threaten the Zionist enterprise. The Zionist enterprise simply asserts that Jews, like every other people in the world, have a right to their own homeland where they can set the agenda, where they can have their own laws, where they can operate a culture and a civilization the way that they want to without the the veto power of non-Jews so why should Jews of all the people in the world not be allowed their own homeland unless you've got a good answer to that then I don't see how you can be anti-Zionist and Jewish success in America or in England or in Australia does nothing to threaten the Zionist enterprise the Zionist enterprise is not primarily about finding and creating a safe space for Jews that can be a side effect that can be a blessing but its primary mission is to simply normalize the Jewish experience. Yeah, I remember when George W. Bush referred to Putin as Putin but innocent times. And uh, also the United States and, and Russia had more in common then. We had, we had common interests. Uh, Russia was a lot weaker. Uh, Russia's become much more formidable under Putin and therefore is more willing to assert its own interests. Also, the West has been steadily expanding NATO right up to the Russian border. Ukraine is de facto, right? This is this is a lesson here for Sonia Sotomayor. Ukraine has become de facto, not de jure, a member of NATO. So de facto means not in law, but effectively. De jure means in law. And so Ukraine is not de jure a member of NATO, but it is de facto a member of NATO. And so that obviously threatens you know, Russia's best interest. Why would it want you know, a hostile... Organization on its doorstep,
1: from lobby fronts like the ADL to the State of Israel. So Maximalism is clearly anti-Zionist still, uh, because Zionism relies on Jewish insecurity to justify.
0: So if you're left wing, right, whether you're a left wing Jew or a left wing non-Jew, you're very likely to be anti-Zionist because Zionism is a form of ethnic nationalism. All right, if you're not down with ethnic nationalism, if you're a true man of the left, who believes that uh, the most fundamental Dividers between people are not race or ethnicity, but they are economics, then you're going to be anti nationalism. So Joseph says that uh, European countries are being destroyed by multiculturalism. Well, your main argument is with your own people. Your own people have essentially signed on for the multicultural enterprise. And you have a few tribes around the world who are more resistant the multicultural enterprise. So maybe there's something to, to be learned from Jewish nationalism, and other types of nationalism, and how can that be applied to European types of nationalism so that people can preserve their own cultures.
1: So by itself. Well, um, I think there is a, a lot of truth to what he says. I, I think he's getting at a certain kind of ambivalence at the heart of the zionist project at least from
0: so i don't think that uh, max blumenthal is a self-hating jew i don't like that term i don't use it right? not a self-hating jew if you're opposed to zionism right? he's simply a true man of the left he has left-wing values that are of greater importance to him than his ethnic values as a jew right? so that doesn't make him self-hating doesn't make him loathsome doesn't make him a bad person Right? He simply values other things more important than ethnic solidarity, ethnic unity, you know, group interests. Right, So plenty of left-wing Jews. If they are more left-wing than they're Jewish, then yeah, of course, they're going to be opposed to Zionism, which is another form of ethnic nationalism.
1: From a Jewish standpoint. Uh, and I th- also from the Christian standpoint. Uh, I might want to go into this, actually. So, I mean, on the one hand... Groups like the ADL want to fight anti-Semitism and call it out, apparently with the intention that one day will end. One day.
0: So what does the Anti-Defamation League and uh, liberals in general have in common? What do they have in common? They're both on eternal missions to educate. So the right looks around and the greatest threat that we see is disorder and contagion. But from a liberal and left-wing perspective, the greatest threat to our well-being is ignorance and attachments to traditional folk ways, and uh, not not becoming modern, and uh, rejecting the Enlightenment. Right from from a liberal perspective, those are the greatest threats. So, also, what what motivates the Anti-Defamation League is uh, fundraising, power, influence. All right, most people want more power rather than less. Most people prefer more money rather than less. And so by agitating about anti-Semitism, the Anti-Defamation League gets to increase its own importance, it gets to increase its own fundraising, and it gets to give purpose and meaning to secular Jewish lives. So Orthodox Jews, by and large, don't care about anti-Semitism because there's no mitzvah in the Torah about combating anti-Semitism. Orthodox Jews are so busy fulfilling the 613 commandments of the Torah they don't have time or interest, generally speaking, to fight against anti-Semitism. But if you're not living a life revolving around Torah observance, study of Torah, keeping the Sabbath, the kosher laws, laws of Taharat, Mishpachah, the laws of family purity, then you need something to fill up that emptiness beyond the pursuit of pleasure. Like People want to feel significant. right? One of our deepest fears is feeling insignificant. And so when you attach yourself to a cause that you feel is eternal and transcendent, such as combating bigotry, then right, you've got significance. Everybody wants to feel significant. We all you know, sign on to various causes and ideologies and groups to keep those latent feelings of insignificance at bay. Some of us even make live streams.
1: Uh, There will be no more anti-Semitism Jews will be just like Presbyterians or Methodists It will just be another religious denomination And any criticism of Judaism itself Will be much like a Presbyterian Might criticize the Catholic dogma Or something like that Um, uh, Maybe he doesn't even want that But I'll give him the benefit of the doubt But on the other hand Zionism relies on anti-Semitism In a way for its justification Now this is not
0: Okay, that's not true all right. Zionism simply means that Jews deserve a state just like any other people. That Jews deserve a place where they can develop their own civilization and culture without the non-Jews having veto power over them. Like, why would you deny Jews out of all the people in the world uh, the ability to uh, have their own state? What do I think will be the outcome of the Kanye thing? I think he's in a lot of trouble, and uh, I don't see him coming back from this very effectively, unless he does what, what Jews call tshuva, unless he makes some you know, dramatic you know, repentance. Yeah, we want to feel significant. We want to go where everyone knows our name, and they're always glad we came. We want to know where people are. People are all the same. We want to go where everyone knows our name. So I don't see this ending well for Kanye West or Kyrie Irving or anyone who is saying publicly Jewish critical things. If you're a celebrity or you're a famous person in America, there's just going to be unbearable media and elite pressure against you if you're publicly saying anti-Jewish things. It's the third rail. It's the most hot button issue because you have the most effective organized resistance against you.
1: Completely accurate when you think about the history of Zionism in the state of Israel. But in terms of the way that it's legitimized, it's legitimized first as we're just a little democratic liberal state in the Middle East, and we deserve your support, but also, we are the last refuge for when anti-Semitism rears its head again. We are the one last escape from the next Hitler, and this is why Israel should always exist. So, in that sense, it justifies itself on the existence of anti-Semitism. It needs that. It needs anti-Semitism. It needs, even, you could say, and I think Max Blumenthal is saying this, a a kind of um, schizophrenia on the part of Jews, that where they see
0: Okay, I think he's overstating it. Yeah, there are certainly lots of advantages to an in-group identity where you feel persecuted, where you can kind of team up and unite around your fear and loathing of the outsider. That's good for any in-group identity. If it's paranoia, right? if it's completely detached from reality, then that comes with an enormous price as well. I don't think Jewish existence or the existence of the Jewish state depends upon whipping up paranoia about how you know the Cossacks are coming to get you.
1: See anti-Semitism everywhere. After all, more anti-Semitism, more justification for Israel. That's what I think Blumenthal is getting at. Um, I don't know if Candace is getting at this. Um, and she affirmatively retweets Max Blumenthal, says, you were about to get into a lot of trouble for stating this. Reminds me of when I said something similar about the NAACP and BLM way back when. When you dis- uh, disrupt the trauma economy and call out the not-for-profits that benefit from it, you become their next target. Uh, I would um, give Candace some credit for this. Uh, and I think, you know, if we're to be charitable to Kanye West, that is, try to represent what he's saying in the best possible light and not just, you know, focus on the
0: kind of contradictions and strangeness. Uh, so trauma economy, that's, that's brand new. I don't think we had such a thing as the trauma economy 50, 60, 70 years ago. Right now it's become a big thing where you know, trauma becomes a whole economy. It's a whole new concept. It's like in the traditional you know, Jewish outlook that there's no such you know, category as, as trauma, right? For example, if you were molested, right, it wasn't, it wasn't expected to be something that would forever ruin your life. Right? So trauma comes from the, the secular worldview, where, where psychology has more importance, right? It's the importation of, of non-Jewish values. Really don't understand what Kyrie did that was so bad. All he did was post a link to a book that Amazon hosts, right? It's still up. People are watching and buying the documentary and the book. So, yeah, it strikes me as a huge overreaction. But Kyrie Irving, I just saw a remark from a journalist that Kyrie Irving was one of his five least favorite people in the NBA. I don't think Kyrie Irving's made a lot of friends in the news media, right? He, he's not someone that journalists like. And so I think part of the piling on against Kyrie Irving is that journalists just don't like this guy. And so journalists will give a lot of slack to people that they like, but they're, they're very happy to pile on t- to people that they, they don't like. And I think a lot of this piling on against Kyrie Irving just simply means journalists don't like this guy. Right. All right. He's not very popular. He hasn't made many friends among the journals. And so they're happy to see him go down. Also, there's probably resentment that, you know, this guy's making $30 million a year. And there's also probably a lot of journalist resentment that uh, Kyrie Irving refused to get vaccinated. And so sports journalists, more so than other journalists, tend to uniformly be on the left. So north of 95% of sports journalists are on the left. Now they're particularly dedicated to denying you know, human biodiversity they have a very strong left wing agenda and I think they just welcome this opportunity to pile on to Kyrie Irving yeah all he did was you know, tweet to a documentary that Amazon hosts you'd think like why is that such a big deal and so I think part of it is just overreaction part of it is people just don't like Kyrie Irving and I think a normal person seeing all the pile on against Kyrie is going to think, you yeah, know, I feel sorry for this guy. Like, what did he do that was so wrong? He just posted one link to, to a documentary that's good enough to be on Amazon.
1: Uh, I do hear a lot of this in that interview with Lex Friedman. I actually listened to a little bit more of it last night uh, while I was going to bed, but Kanye was saying, you know, um, they create trauma. And so Disney creates trauma, even with a movie like Bambi where Bambi's mom died. Oh, I remember seeing that in the theaters and crying, uh, <laughs> crying my eyes out. Um, uh, and, and what he's saying is that they almost need to traumatize you in order to uh, fleece you, you could say. Uh, they they place this trauma in your mind very early on, and then you kind of need to keep coming back to them. Now, maybe that's kind of taking it a bit too far, at least in the case of Bambi. But maybe it's not taking it too far in the case of BLM, that there needs to be this suggestion of widespread, rampant, vindictive, immoral attacks on the black.
0: So, yeah, I think there's something to that that any group can ramp up its trauma story and particularly if it's good at crafting narratives if it has a larger role than average in culture it can really light up the trauma narratives and and eventually outsiders start to resent it people don't want to be manipulated so that's the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the background that's the Sydney Opera House why do Gentiles and others have to bow to Jews and their groups never see Jews bowing to any other group of people we all bow to those who are more powerful than us so Jews haven't always been powerful when Jews lacked power and influence then I assure you Gentiles were not bowing to them right now Jews are disproportionately compared to their numbers successful in the United States, Australia and Europe and the natural human tendency is to bow towards people who are more successful than you are and to expect other people to bow to you when you achieve great levels of success we all tend to be nice and respectful and to concede to those who are more powerful than us so think you think you're walking down the street and there's just a narrow path and one person is going to have to give way to the other person Right, the person who looks bigger and stronger, more formidable and more scary, right, he is much more likely to be acceded to. People are much more likely to you know, effectively give him the right away. And so groups that are highly effective at organizing and punishing their enemies, all right, and who had disproportionate influence on the high grounds of culture, such as in the academy, in the professions, such as the legal profession, accounting, dentistry, medicine law, right, groups with tremendous power and the ability to organize and to punish their enemies, all right, they're going to naturally find outside groups learning from them and frequently deferring to them, right, so just like hypocrisy is the obeisance the vice pays to virtue, bowing is the obeisance that the less powerful pay to the more powerful, That's just the way the world works. I'm coming back here a hundred times if I have to. We win. They lose. That's how the world works.
1: Grace in America by the police. It creates, generates this trauma or emphasizes things way out of proportion in order to fleece you, get your donations and so on. You know, um, I I think there's a lot of truth to that, actually. Um, But what I want to get at is um, this is, uh, this is a response to all this stuff. By uh, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro responded to Candace Owens and he says, I think the ADL is a partisan hack organization too. But RTing Max Blumenthal, who spends his life covering for Jew haters and stumping for Israel's destruction, makes the conversation significantly worse. It's garbage. So he is, Ben Shapiro is publicly calling out Candace. And he's done this a few times. He has publicly called out Candace, almost pretending like he doesn't work with her. (laughs) He couldn't just, you know, DM her or um, at the Daily Wire walk across.
0: Right, they both work together at the Daily Wire. So why do many right-wing Jews regard the Anti-Defamation League as no good? Because the Anti-Defamation League doesn't just fight ethnic defamation, they also have very much a left-wing agenda. But they never pose it as a left-wing agenda, just like liberals and leftists in general. Right? They don't pose as having an agenda. Right? They pose as simply being objective seekers of truth. Right? This is just what's objectively true. This is just what happens when you see the world openly and honestly, and you let go of your traditional prejudices and folk ways and your traditional medieval ways of thinking. So, when you develop the modern notion of a buffered, autonomous, strategic, rational self who can make decisions and uh, pursue rational ends. And has you know natural inclinations towards goodness, right you just take that as you know the only enlightened way to be, and anyone who opposes that well they they must be primitives, and so liberals by and large don't believe that they're liberals, that they're just another group of partisans right? Liberals you know by and large think they're objective truth seekers that they're the rational ones that they are the, the products of enlightenment and the rest of it just simply haven't caught up to their higher stakes.
1: Across the room and talk to her about these things. He needs to kind of signal about this and rip, uh, misrepresent Blumenthal. I'm no fan of Max Blumenthal overall but I don't think he's a genocidal maniac. Uh, interesting. Uh, so this goes a little further. So Canvas responded to that. And um, someone sent me this from Telegram. So Ali Alexander is a Really strange and you could say disreputable figure. Um, I won't go into some of the rather horrifying rumors. They are rumors, I would say, but they seem to have some basis uh, involving Carl Rove and so on. Uh, Google it if you must. Um, <laughs> he, he has been, I believe, convicted of a felony car theft or something like this. Uh, you know, it's rather bad. Uh, then again, um, if you know, people turn their life around if they do the crime and serve their time, they can reenter society, and that's the way it should be. But, yeah, still there's a little whiff of uh, being disreputable about him. And um, also just being simply a grifter. He benefited immensely from, no doubt, from the Stop the Steal movement. He was taking donations. He was out in front. Um, He is a behind-the-scenes operative. And after January 6th, so there's a huge amount of pressure on him, he was pretty much going nuts. He's also been interviewed by the J6 committee. He's in the kind of mid-range of J6. So there's the low-hanging fruit. That is the people who invaded the Capitol and you know did all sorts of things there's the high-hanging fruit the donald trump's of the world who kind of you know on you know on whose behalf this whole movement was based but also someone who spurred it on and gave big speeches promised to walk arm-in-arm with his uh, comrades to the Capitol. And then there's the kind of mid-range, and that's where Ali Alexander is. He's kind of grifting off it. He's talking to congressmen according to his own account. He's working with, you know, women for America first and this kind of stuff uh, who um, were renting places where these rallies took place. He he is a mover and shaker, the one who's behind the scenes and not really a household name, like, say, Donald Trump or, like, the uh, QAnon shaman. Uh, I don't believe he himself entered the Capitol, but he certainly uh, greased the wheels, uh, and he's is, he is also a, a very public Christian now um, and all this kind of stuff. So our girl Candace Owens is, according to Ali, calling out her boss's ethnic victimhood theater tantrum. And he goes on...
0: So, yeah, a lot of these people like Ali Alexander, Nick Fuentes, wrap themselves in Christianity, but you don't actually notice much that's particularly Christian in the way they live. So someone who's authentically Christian, they're going to have to sacrifice for their Christianity. Right? It's going to shape their life. is going to change the way they speak. It's going to limit the things that they can do. And so I think many people found it was disreputable to be alt-right or to be an ethnic nationalist or to be a maggotard And they're now you know, wrapping themselves in, in Christianity as a more socially acceptable vehicle for their values. And their values are simply you know, every organism wants to create an environment where it is best suited for thriving. Now we, we develop ideologies on top of that about why the type of environment we seek is, you know, the best environment for all people. But it's very rare that anyone develops an ideology that is opposed to their self-interest. Right? Ideologies are simply extensions of our evolutionary makeup where we try to recreate a world around us that is best suited our own thriving and then sometimes you may think the path to do that is through ethnic nationalism other times you say, oh the best path to do this is through Christianity and I'm in uh, botanical gardens right now, so the ideologies may change but what it comes down to is we all want to thrive, we all want to prosper we all want more power rather than less, we all want more autonomy rather than less right? We all want more safety rather than less. And so we may switch between various ideologies depending on how effective they are at promoting the world that we want within a certain situation. So looking out at the Sydney Harbour Bridge, looking out, you can see the Sydney Opera House in the distance as I sit here in the botanical gardens.